Shabbat Shalom. Okay, so we are fast moving into the fall holy days, and we've been focused on some of those issues and related to those days. And so uh, today I've entitled this Yom Kippur Past and Future. We're going to be celebrating Yom Kippur on Wednesday. It's an annual holy day. It's the Day of Atonement, a day that is full of the revelation related to why and how God, through Jesus, forgives, cleanses, and restores things and people to their former glory. This ancient day has meaning and purpose for us today, seeing that we all struggle with sin and shame. We, too, need forgiveness on an ongoing basis. We, too, need a cleansing on an ongoing basis. And Yom Kippur is the picture and the revelation of how God does this. This annual holy day also marshals significance by preparing us for the great and final atonement that transitions us from this present age into the eternal age to come. So today we'll begin our journey of discovery as we look at Yom Kippur past, present, and future. I want to start with our chair passage. It's the passage we've used for the last oh, five, six weeks as we've approached the fall holy days. It's found in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Paul speaking to his community, to the believers, mostly primarily Gentiles. Um, he says this in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, Yom Kippur, for example, is one of those festivals. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These believers were celebrating the festivals of God in the context of Jesus being the fulfillment. They celebrated these holy days in the reality of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for us. And there were Jewish Gnostics who came in and was, were saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You got to do it this way. And they were trying to drag them back into the shadows, into some legalism that was a burden that they couldn't carry. It would have stripped them of all the joy that they'd found in Jesus, Jesus being the reality the fulfillment of the meaning of all of these festivals. So Paul says, don't let them trouble you. These are yours to celebrate as long as you keep in mind that the context, the reality is Jesus. Every festival points to Jesus. Every festival is about Jesus. It's a revelation of who he is and what he would accomplish in his first coming and in his second coming. Notice Paul puts it in the future tense. He says, these are shadows of things to come, things still to come. In other words, each of these ancient festivals not only reveal who Jesus is and what he would accomplish in his first coming, they also reveal what's going to come in the future at his return. So these festivals inform us about Jesus, his agenda, his ministry, both here, now, and when he returns. They're important for us to uh, focus on. In fact, in focusing on these, they keep us centered in the Messiah. All year round, 
beautiful celebrations that teach our children all about Jesus so they can find the reality of all the promises of God in Him. So these are uh, beautiful uh, times and seasons that, we're, that we get to enter into. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into Yom Kippur past. Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to go all the way back to the days of Moses. I'm going to read some texts here. Um, it's going to feel somewhat rushed because I've got more material than I have time. So bear with me. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. What we learn in this first passage is that God is about reclaiming his creation. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to atone for it. And he's going to remove it, not, not only from us, but from cosmic geography. He starts with his own sanctuary where heaven and earth meet together. That's the presence. All right, we're all dismissed. I think I lost my mic. All right, we're going to, hey, there we go. Praise God. All right, no one can leave. We're going to finish this. We are a messianic, charismatic congregation, so there's always signs and wonders. Wonder what that sign meant. Okay. So God is, is, is all about um, making an atonement not only for people, but for creation itself. And he's going to retake not only uh, people, but creation itself. And so how does God do this, of course, right? How does God cover their sins annually? Keep in mind, these are the types and shadows. They don't really do that in a way that is real and lasting, but they're object lessons that teach us how he's going to do that. And how he's going to do that is in Jesus. These shadows all point to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So let's read this a little bit. He's going to do this atonement thing with two goats. Keep in mind that the animal sacrifices are substitutionary devices, that these animals are living souls. They give up their life for us and pay the debt that we owe, pointing forward to the one they represent, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who when he dies, his atonement, his blood poured out, carrying eternal life, provides an eternal redemption, an eternal atonement, so that you don't have to do this anymore. It's done and accomplished through the Son. So let's look at this, verses 3 through 7. 
But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, two goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you can imagine this elaborate ritual that's taking place. Quite a bit of time is involved here. And now Aaron moves to the front of the tent in which everyone is standing. They're all going to witness this, right? He has two goats that are before him. Verse 8, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. Interesting. He's going to cast lots over the two goats. That's slide 21. We might have lost that power too. No, it's behind me. The back one's down. Okay. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Hmm. Now we know who the Lord is, but who is Azazel? There's a goat for the Lord, and there's a goat for Azazel. The JPS, that's the the Jewish Publication Society's Torah commentary on Leviticus 16.8, states this concerning Azazel. Quote, Azazel in later myth was the name given to the demonic ruler of the wilderness. Now, in Hebrew cosmology and in terms of cosmic geography, the wilderness was a symbol of the wasteland of sin and shame. It was also the place of destruction. It became known as the dwelling place of the disembodied spirits of the wicked dead. The wilderness, the place of Azazel, was the realm of the dead. In fact, this is the underworld in Jewish cosmology, where Azazel reigns as king of the dead. In the Jewish book of Enoch, which was uh, written during the intertestamental uh, time, Azazel corresponds, corresponds directly to one of the fallen sons of God in Genesis 6. Remember the Genesis 6 story, where the fallen angels, they fall and come to our world and cohabitate with women and have offspring? and they're kind of like half God, half man. They were called the Nephilim. Well, these, these uh, Nephilim, when they died, their departed spirits became known, at least by the New Testament time period, as what the New Testament writers refer to as demons. They are the demons of the New Testament, if you will. Again, according to the JPS Torah Commentary, Azazel was the archangel who was given jurisdiction over sorcery, acts of war, and harlotry, all exemplifications of evil. In other words, this figure became the chief of all the fallen ones. He is the king of the fallen angels and the demonic realm of the underworld. Note well the resemblance between Satan and Azazel. When you look at what was developed in the intertestamental period around Azazel, you'll see it's connected fully with what the New Testament writers refer to when they talk about the figure 
known as Satan. In fact, some of the New Testament writers draw from and even quote from the book of Enoch in their development of the spiritual realm. JPS Torah Commentary again says this, Being cast into the wilderness by the archangel Raphael, Azazel was confined under jagged rocks to live there in darkness until judgment day. Again, this is a reference to the underworld, which is the realm of the dead. And this is the place of departed, disembodied spirits of those who have died. Azazel is the Lord of the dead. As you come into the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament point out that, that Satan is actually the Lord of the dead. He's the one that has the keys to hell and death, right? So there's this big connection as we come into the New Testament between Azazel and Satan. In this manner, slide 29, Torah commentary, in this manner, he, Azazel, came to rule the wilderness or the underworld of the dead. So this, again, is uh, the backdrop of what later becomes known as Azazel. Let's look more closely at what the New Testament says about the realm of the dead. In ancient cosmic geography, the gates of hell is on Mount Hermon. It's called the mountains of Bashan. But by the time you get to the New Testament, those mountains are basically, within those mountains, you have one mount, it's Mount Hermon. And it's also the place where the angels, according to Jewish mythology, is where the fallen angels came through kind of a portal on Mount Hermon. And that's where they first entered in, in Genesis 6, to do their work. So all of this is really well connected within uh, the intertestamental period. So this ancient cosmic geography of the gates of hell is, in fact, on Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is located in the wilderness or desert of the upper Galilee. In fact, Mount Hermon is the very place where Jesus was standing when he revealed to Peter that upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That had meaning for Jewish ears because they understood based on their own history, their own theology, the antecedent legends concerning Mount Hermon. Here Jesus is at the base of Mount Hermon saying, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, which was right there behind them, the backdrop is Mount Hermon. As if he was saying, and the gates of hell that's right here, even the very home base of Satan on earth, shall not stop what I'm about to do. In fact, six days later, he takes Peter and John up that mountain. That mountain happens to be Mount Hermon. And he transfigures himself revealing his full divinity. Think about that. Think about where he chooses to do this. It's as if, as if he is saying to the serpent, I know you've been looking for me since the birth of Abel. The ancient prophecy about a child coming from the woman that will strike the enemy's head, right? Well, the serpent... The evil one doesn't know when that offspring will be born. Satan obviously is thinking 
who will this child be? And if I kill him when he's a child, I've spared myself. And so we see this kind of play out throughout history. In fact, if you think about Pharaoh and his edicts, he wanted all the Hebrew boys to be drowned in the Nile. Satan had inflamed him in his heart, manipulated him, influenced him to kill the Hebrew male children in the Nile. Why? Because he's trying to take out the Messiah. So here's Jesus saying, you've been looking for me for a long time. You thought you had me in Pharaoh land. You thought you had me and killed me when you influenced and inflamed and manipulated King Herod in the same way to kill all the Jewish boys ages two years and under in the realm of Bethlehem, in the region of Bethlehem. Again, the enemy trying to take out the Messiah as a child. And here he is now, no longer hiding. He has arrived and he's ready for the battle. And on Mount Hermon, which is the location of the gates of hell, he transfigures himself as if to bait the serpent, right? As if he's saying, look, you've been looking for me? Here I am. Come and get me. Let's do this, right? And this is where that whole battle, of course, is going to ensue, ensue from that point on. Now, let's go back to Leviticus 16, 9 through 10. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, it's obvious that the first goat is a sin offering and therefore symbolizes and prefigures Jesus as the fulfillment. Everyone gets that. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the lamb that's going to be slaughtered. And through his death and blood, sin is going to be atoned for. What about the second goat? The second goat is going to be sent to Azazel in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Does this point to Jesus as well? This is where scholars really kind of part ways with each other, trying to figure out what this is all about. But if Jesus does represent Azazel or vice versa, if Azazel, the goat for Azazel, represents Jesus, then how will Jesus be sent to Azazel in the wilderness? More in a moment. Leviticus 16, 11 through 14. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take censers of, uh, full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with this blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do so for the tent of the meeting, 
which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So God, through substitutionary atonements, he's going to take and cleanse his own living quarters because all of the sin of Israel has been imputed to these animals and their blood's carried into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies. And then they're forgiven and cleansed. God takes our sins. God takes our darkness. God takes our shame upon himself. And then he gives to us his life. But he says, you know what? I got to clean my house because it's just filled with all your sins. But I'm going to not only clean you, I'm going to clean where I live. This is the atonement that pictures the age to come when God removes all wickedness from this creation. In fact, he, he removes creation itself. He has a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth that is coming. All of that is pictured here. Verse 17, no one may enter the tent of the meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself, for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out on the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goats and put it on the horns of the altar and all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. This is the goat for Azazel. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgression, and all their sins. He's going to take his hands and lay it on the live goat, the goat for Azazel, the king of the dead that lives in the realm of the dead. And he's going to confess all the sins of Israel. And through the laying on of hands, he imparts the sin of Israel into the goat of Azazel. In fact, one of the uh, root meanings of Azazel um, is the idea of, of bearing a burden or removing a burden. The goat of removal, some of your translations have the goat of removal, because it's going to remove their sin, right? Think about this. Impute the sin of Israel to the goat and then send the goat to Azazel. A lot of meaning tied up in that uh, picture. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it states, concerning Jesus, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus didn't just carry the burden of the sin of the world. He became sin. The serpent is the personification of sin. Jesus becomes a serpent on the stake. The personification of sin. The sin of the world in Jesus on the cross. This is where Jesus morphs from the glorious Son of God into the serpent of sin and shame. John 3, 14 through 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember that story? Serpents are biting the people. They're dying. They're poisonous serpents. God says, put a, a brass or a copper serpent, serpent 
on a, on, a, on a stake. Put it up so everyone can see it. And then tell my people, whoever looks and fixes their gaze on the serpent on the stake will be healed. And they do, and they're healed. Jesus says, I too must be lifted up. And if I'm lifted up, whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Got the connection? He becomes the serpent on the stake. Personification of sin because he takes into his being all of our sin. As the head of humanity, the second Adam, he will suffer the wrath of God on our behalf and be judged for sin and shame in his own being in order to satisfy justice and righteousness so that all who believe in him can now be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed. Leviticus 16, 21 through 22, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself into a remote area and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Keep in mind, the wilderness is the realm of the dead. The goat for Azazel is going to remove the sins of Israel to the very place where the chief of demons resides, where the king over the dead rules and reigns. This is where Azazel is sent. Another way to phrase that is, the goat of Azazel will transport the sins of Israel to the gates of hell, the realm of the dead. Why? Think of the mission of Jesus. What is it that Jesus is going to do ultimately when he returns, right? Before we go there, remember John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets? What did he exclaim when he saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ah, the scapegoat, the goat of removal, the one who not only atones for sin, but removes sin. He's going to take away the sin of the world. But where does he take it, John? Where is he going to transport it to, right? Yeah. Maybe we'll get there because we're running out of time on Wednesday. This will be part two on Wednesday. But suffice it to say, Jesus has initially fulfilled Yom Kippur in his death on the cross, carrying the weight of the sin of the world, becoming sin, being judged for sin as our substitutionary atonement. And then he dies. And where does he go? He goes where every other person has went when they died. To the realm of the dead. This is where he goes. This is the descent of Jesus, if you will. It's not really clear. There's a lot of uh, discussion of, uh, around what actually happened in his death. But he went to the realm of the dead. He took from the king of the dead the keys of hell and Hades, death itself. And he limited him. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over him and ascended as seated at the right hand of God where he's now ruling over all the principalities, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? The underworld. Yes, he is king of kings. 
And when he returns here, in that great white throne judgment, he will take the sin of the world and he will lay it at the feet of the serpent and his fallen angels. Ultimately, they're going to become responsible for sin in humanity. Yeah, human beings, we have our part. We're accountable. We have to answer to God. God made a way for us so that we could be saved. But Satan was involved in that from the word go. He was the tempter. And God's going to lay at his feet this mess, all this sin, all this shame. And then he's going to have them cast into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is going to consume the evil one, his angels. It says, even death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Even the realm that Satan ruled over, the realm of death itself, it's cast into the fire too. It ceases to exist too. Because in the end, through Jesus, at that final consummation of this present age, as we go into the age to come, every wicked person, every wicked thing, every, you know, amount of sin and shame is gathered and cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, he is the one that carries away our sins and ultimately they're all eradicated with the evil one in the lake of fire. So, in conclusion, Yom Kippur, this day not only gives us a context for living today, because it tells us about our past, it also points us forward to the future and what God is going to accomplish in Jesus when he returns. This day represents all of that. In celebrating this holy day and exalting Jesus, we get that perspective, that frame of reference, that grit for facing our giants, for facing our temptations, for facing our failures today. It brings about that hope that we all have that in Jesus, our sins are not only atoned for, not only are we forgiven and cleansed, but they're going to be removed as far as the east is from the west. I believe there'll come a time in, 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 in Jesus' return where we have the consummate fulfillment. We have the initial fulfillment in his first coming, but that consummate fulfillment when it comes, it's going to be amazing because the day will come in which we will not even remember the things that we still remember today. They still have that you know, tinge of guilt or even shame, even though we know, we're, we, we know we're forgiven, you know, how we can really be hard on ourselves. Yeah, the, the ultimate fulfillment will be when he takes all of that away, even from our memory, ultimately, at a given point, it's removed even at that point, and we'll no longer remember our sin and our shame. That's how complete this redemption is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we bow before you. You are our Savior. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for 
this atonement that you've given to us by your own suffering, through your own blood. Thank you for salvation. We put our trust in you. It's in your name that we live. We give you glory and praise. Amen.